Welcome to MCC from the Capitol, a podcast produced by the Missouri Catholic Conference. We invite you to listen along as our host and executive director, Jamie Morris, sits down with MCC lobbyist Kurt Wickmer to discuss public policy issues from a Catholic perspective. We hope you enjoy this episode of MCC from the Capitol. Welcome to the Missouri Catholic Conference from the Capitol Podcast and our first legislative roundtable of 2023. I'm your host, Jamie Morris, Executive Director of the MCC. And uh, before we get started, and as this is our first legislative roundtable of 2023, uh, just want to first, because this is the first podcast since uh, the retirement of one of our staffers, Rita Linhart, want to give a quick and public thank you for her work. She has, had been with us for 34 years working on criminal justice reform and specifically on the death penalty, uh, two issues that are sometimes difficult to work on in this state. And so I know she would hate me doing this, but also I know she won't be listening to this podcast. So just from the start, uh, want to give our thanks and best wishes to Rita. Now, with departures also come arrivals, and so I would also like to introduce our newest lobbyist here at the Missouri Catholic Conference, Kurt Wickmer. Kurt, welcome. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. Now, if you don't mind, uh, for those that haven't maybe read your bio or, or seen um, the announcement, just want to introduce yourself quickly, you know, give your background to those listening. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Curtis Joseph Wickmer. A uh, St. Louis native, I uh, recently graduated from St. Louis University School of Law, uh, and after graduation, I've just recently joined the Missouri Catholic Conference back in October. I'm picking up a lot of the topics that Rita covered while she was working here, and hopefully, given enough time and experience, I can fill in those shoes that she had. Kurt is doing very well and has jumped in feet first, so we're very fortunate and very fortunate that Kurt was able to work with Rita before she left. She left us in very good hands, but kind of going back to changes from last year as we were preparing for the round table i was going back and looking through our discussion this time last year and much has changed this time last year the senate was in a major gridlock that it never really got out of amongst the republicans a lot of infighting and i think at this time last year no bills had made it out of the senate so this year, we seem to have a more unified Republican Party uh, in both chambers, but especially in the Senate. I think around 10 pieces of legislation have made it through the Senate and are waiting to be heard in the House. So in that regard, things are already you know, more productive and the tenor is a lot better over at the Capitol thus far, although as we know, things could very easily change. But we're already starting to see kind of the priorities of the GOP and just the legislature in general this session. And just want to hit on a few of those. Not all of these are issues we're working on, but kind of gives us an idea of where the General Assembly is at the moment. Uh, first and foremost, initiative petition reform has been large thus far in session. There have been multiple pieces of legislation filed to try to change the way in which we amend our constitution. Most of these have revolved around changing the threshold from a simple majority to amend the constitution to greater than say 60%. You would need 60% or more to pass a constitutional amendment. Um, and that is one that the GOP had worked on last session 
And again, just with how that session ended, they weren't able to make progress, but seemed much more unified in trying to get something done this year. The other issue that we've been dealing with quite a bit over at the Capitol or, or that the legislature has been dealing with are uh, gender issues. I am not certain that we have had a week this session so far in which we haven't had at least one hearing dealing with multiple gender identity issues. Most of these have either been addressing biological males competing in female sports. Also, we've had a lot of discussion and a lot of legislation filed on banning of gender transition treatment for minors. And as you can imagine, those have been pretty hot button issues and brought in a lot of individuals on both sides of the debate to the Capitol. And I think we have a few more scheduled for next week as well. So this is an issue that will just keep getting bigger. Finally, the other area that we've seen a lot of movement on thus far is uh, education reform. And that's come in a couple different ways. The Senate passed out a Parents' Bill of Rights, which for the most part deals with transparency in schools, making sure that parents have access to the curriculum, but also dealt with some of the more hot button issues as well of what is being taught in the classroom in regards to CRT and other areas. So, you know, we have typically as a conference not gotten involved as much in trying to address what curriculum is being taught, but as a broader point, have always really advocated for parental choice and school choice. And so I want that, I guess, kind of to segue into our first piece of legislation that we have been working on as a conference. And it is Senate Bill 81, sponsored by Senator Mary Elizabeth Coleman, and is meant to be a broad school choice bill. This bill is a simple bill. It just says that money should follow the child and that parents are the best ones to determine who they think should teach their children. And so it is every dollar of the state funding formula for each child. That's going to vary a little bit because each child is going to get a different allocation on the state based on their address of the home school district they're in because of hold harmless schools, because of a host of other items. But whatever the state's dollars are that would go to that child can follow the child wherever they go, whether that's to another public school, whether that is to a private or a parochial school. Senator Coleman, as she states it, she really wants us to be a money follows the child and wanting to fund you know, students, in her words, uh, not systems. It allows the parents to decide what is the best education for the child and the state's share of that funding to be used by the parents at their discretion for the education of their children. And so she has proposed this. It was heard in committee a couple of weeks ago. We testified in support and is currently sitting on the informal Senate calendar, meaning that at any time it could be brought up for debate. And so we're hearing and hoping that it will be brought up um, next week, maybe on the Senate floor, uh, now that they've already taken care of the Parents' Bill of Rights bill. And so this is one that we are in support of. And as we said in the committee hearing, as a church, we know that parents are the first and foremost educators of their children. And so anything that gives them the ability to direct the education of their child, and it doesn't even have to be to our parochial schools, but you know, what is the best fit for each family and what is the best fit for each child? And so, you know, not certain as this is the first year that the bill has been filed, um, how far we'll get, but are hopeful that we'll get some movement on that and maybe get it out of the Senate here very soon. 
The other area that we have been working on is extended Medicaid eligibility for pregnant women. This is kind of falls under the bucket of what the pro-life movement in Missouri is maybe going to look like in a post-Dobbs world, going back to things that have changed since last year, that since the Dobbs decision and abortion has been banned in Missouri, we're starting to see, I think, the framework of what the pro-life movement is going to look like going forward in areas that maybe we will have more bipartisan support than we've had in the past. And one of those areas is addressing you know, the health of children, but also addressing maternal mortality in the state. And so we have testified in support of Senate Bill 45 from Senator Gannon. Currently, low-income pregnant and postpartum women receiving benefits through Monet HealthNet for pregnant women are Show Me Healthy Babies are eligible for pregnancy-related coverage throughout the pregnancy and for 60 days following the end of the pregnancy. The American Rescue Plan has created a state plan amendment, SPA, extending current coverage for these women under Medicaid, which would increase coverage from the 60 days to a full year after birth. The United States and Missouri have climbing maternal mortality and morbidity rates. We are the only first world nation where these rates are rising. Missouri has the seventh maternal mortality rate in the nation. Extending coverage to these women is so important because some of the conditions do not always present themselves in the first 60 days postpartum. They may take several months to appear, SB 45 will help take care of Missouri's most vulnerable and very vulnerable populations. Speaking to the bipartisan nature of this legislation, Senate Bill 45 was also heard with an identical bill, Senate Bill 90, sponsored by Democrat Tracy McCreary. Thank you, Senator Coleman and committee for uh, sending a strong signal this morning that Missouri must do better at preventing maternal mortality. This hearing today sends a message that people are tired of differences on some issues being the excuse for inaction on every issue. Helping women and children should be a priority we all share. I believe this is the year the legislature can put people before politics and get this done to help families across our beautiful state. Each year, around 60 women die within one year of being pregnant, 60 women. And the overwhelming majority of those deaths, nearly 75%, are preventable. Just let that sink in. Currently, low-income women can receive Medicaid coverage during their pregnancy, but that coverage expires 60 days after giving birth. Among the top recommendations from Governor Parson's administration to improve the survival rate of Missouri women is to extend coverage to one year postpartum, which is why we're here this morning. I truly appreciate Senator Gannon's willingness to partner with me on this life-saving legislation. It's our hope that our partnership sends a signal about the bipartisan nature of this legislation. Again, it's this view of you know trying to help the mother, trying to help the child, and really trying to put Missouri in a position of, you know, now that we've banned abortion, how do we further address the needs of pregnant women, of their children, and of their families? And, you know, I suspect we'll see more movement in this area as session goes on with proposals for childcare, you know, for tax credits for children. And, and so we will be keeping an eye on those as well and 
will obviously be testifying in support as those bills come up before the Senate and the House. Now, kind of going in a different direction, as things change, some things do remain the same. And we've also been advocating against Medicaid work requirements. And Kurt, you've worked this issue a little bit. Would you like to kind of let everyone know what we're doing with us, Senate Joint Resolution 4? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So Senate Joint Resolution 4, sponsored by Senator Koenig, would put a requirement of at least 80 hours of work for Medicaid recipients. Now, this 80-hour work requirement could either be employment, private or public sector, could be education or vocational training, substance abuse treatment programs, or even child care for a different Medicaid recipient. And I believe that in, in its objectives, the objective of this bill is to encourage people who are on Medicaid to gain more employment so they can gradually stand on their own two feet and they won't need government assistance. And we can see that in a lot of the, I guess there are a lot of carve-outs within the work requirement, whether it's education or vocational training, that would make it easier than just only um, making 80 hours of public or private sector employment. But unfortunately, what we know is that whenever you put in any additional restrictions or requirements on getting government assistance, it's inevitable that at least somebody is going to fall through the cracks. And so though it it is possibly good natured and a a good objective to try and encourage work this way, ultimately it does put a bit of a risk on Medicaid recipients. And even a short gap in coverage can cause major problems for Medicaid recipients. So for that reason, we oppose this bill. Though we do have another bill that also covers Medicaid and other government benefits. It mostly covers SNAP, TANF, and other food programs from the government. It is Senate Bill 82 by Senator Mayor Elizabeth Coleman. It also encourages beneficiaries of government assistance to gradually gain employment and work away from receiving government benefits. What it would do is that, as the law currently exists, there is a bit of a benefits cliff when it comes to receiving government benefits. If you reach a certain level of income per year, you lose eligibility to receive any SNAP benefits or food stamps, essentially, from the government. What this bill proposes is that as a person's income raises higher and above the maximum amount available to receive SNAP, rather than dropping the coverage entirely for that individual, it would gradually take away a percentage of the coverage under SNAP based on what percentage above that maximum level that that person is at. So currently, you know, without Senate Bill 82 in place, say you make $10,000 and that's the maximum allowable in order to receive SNAP. If you happen to receive a raise, and it could be something as small as 25 cents an hour, uh, if you happen to receive a raise, even if it takes you out of that $10,000 amount, say you make $10,500 in a year, uh, you would lose all of your SNAP benefits. Whereas under Senate Bill 82, if it passes, you could make, say, $10,500 a year, and ordinarily where $10,000 would make you lose your coverage, you instead only lose $500 of your coverage under SNAP. So we definitely encourage this. A lot of times we see under our current law, when someone approaches this benefits cliff, they just choose not to get this raise in employment, because if they get this raise, they're going to lose all their benefits, and it'll be a net loss for them ultimately. And so... We like this bill and we support it because it allows people to continue to make gains in their employment uh, without risking, you know, losing all these benefits that they rely on. And I think that's important. And, you know, because as the church, we do recognize the value of work and we do want to help 
those individuals better themselves and we don't want to discourage them from taking good employment or taking raises or trying to better themselves. But this allows them to do so without completely losing their safety net. And so, as Kurt said, we are in support of this. And then on the House side, we have an identical House bill that is being sponsored by Representative Alex Riley. And so this is one we've worked with uh, our partners in Catholic Charities um, and other organizations. Again, as, as hopefully a bipartisan effort of something that would appeal to those that you know, want to get individuals back to work and want to encourage work, but also those that do believe in you know, some level of a safety net for individuals. So it, this seems to strike that balance and, and really be kind of the better way of dealing with encouraging work for those that are receiving benefits and receiving aid. The other area that we've been working on in the last few weeks are uh, some criminal justice bills. It's taken a little while for these to, to be heard in committee, but Kurt, you testified this week on a couple of bills. Would you like to let us know about those? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a pair of bills that are virtually the same. Word for word, they, they have the same text identically, but they're House Bills 372 and 382, each sponsored by Representative Kimberly Ann Collins and Representative Rasheen Aldridge. Essentially, these bills would grant an opportunity for incarcerated individuals in Missouri criminal justice systems to receive a parole hearing 60 days earlier than they otherwise would have the opportunity to based on a completion of work hours, community service, or um, enrollment in different education or job training programs in prison. Now, just because the incarcerated individual will have the opportunity to get a parole hearing 60 days earlier doesn't necessarily mean that they will be given a clearance to have early release 60 days earlier. Uh, it's still up to the decision of the parole board. And additionally, these uh, 60 days earlier parole hearing is not eligible for people who have been incarcerated for life without parole sentences of that nature. Despite the fact that it's not a guaranteed parole, though, even a 60-day earlier hearing, we believe, is enough to encourage incarcerated individuals to have better behavior in prison, encourage good habits that hopefully can be continued after release from prison as well. No, and, and that's always something we strive for is how do we help individuals that are going to be released? You know, how do we help them better themselves? How do we help them be productive citizens when they get out? And you know, as I said, those so far have been two of the criminal justice bills. I would expect that we will get more movement in that as the session goes on. You know, we're hopeful again this year, as we did last year, that clean slate legislation will be debated and are, are somewhat optimistic that we will um, maybe get some movement on that this year. Would you like to talk a little bit about like what clean slate is for those that don't know? Yeah, it's very surprising too, because this session we have several clean slate bills sponsored by different senators and representatives, such as Senator Williams, Senator Trent, or even representative, I think, Christofanelli. We got a bunch of different bills that involve what what is referred to as a clean slate bill. A lot of these bills have passed in Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, think Oregon as well. It's a very bipartisan bill from what we've seen in other state legislatures. Essentially, it is an expungement provision for the state that enacts the bill. Currently in Missouri, there is eligibility for expungement for former incarcerated individuals. I believe the maximum allowable expunged felonies in Missouri is one. The maximum allow allowable expunged misdemeanors is three. 
each of the clean slate bills in legislature would extend the maximum allowable felonies to be expunged from one to three and would extend the misdemeanors eligible for expungement from three to five. Additionally, the clean slate bills would make expungement automatic for certain nonviolent felonies. Currently, the expungement process in Missouri is not automatic. It requires the incarcerated individual to apply, pay, I believe, a $500 fee for the application. And generally speaking, formerly incarcerated individuals are a bit inhibited in their attempts to receive expungement because these processes can take a long time. It's not guaranteed. Even filing and awaiting a response can take an extended period of time. And the form itself is somewhat complicated. And formerly incarcerated individuals may not often have the expertise to navigate the system and make sure that they have everything filed properly. So if clean slate is enacted in Missouri, this process would become automatic for a set number of offenses. The list of offenses that are eligible for expungement isn't exhaustive and it isn't very specific. However, uh, what is specific is the offenses that won't be available for automatic expungement. And these include violent crimes such as armed robbery, battery, assault, obviously homicide offenses. Generally speaking, a lot of these crimes eligible for expungement would be nonviolent, such as maybe petty theft without any violent aspect of the crime. And for those that may be asking, you know, why would we want to expand out the list of crimes that could be expunged? What's sort of the goal of this legislation? Right, right. That's a good point. The goal of the legislation is to make sure that the people who have previously committed these crimes and have managed to turn their lives around and not commit crimes subsequently uh, have the opportunity to have their record expunged so that they can assimilate into society and daily life a little bit better. It's not entirely uh, well known among everyone, but your record and your criminal record is checked when you say, um, apply for housing, uh, when you make a job application. And oftentimes uh, a criminal can have committed a crime, you know, many years in the past. And when they apply for a new job, despite this crime having been committed in the past, it'll still show up on their permanent record, maybe a decade down the line, any, any amount of time. And so oftentimes they'll lose opportunity for housing, for employment, when this is somebody who has spent years without repeating offenses and has reformed their lives after serving their time in prison. I don't quite recall the amount of time required for the expenditure to be automatic. I believe it's possible it might depend on the offense, but I do believe it's a number of years before automatic expungement can take place, possibly three to five years. Yeah. So we're not talking about, you know, get, right. let, let, you know, kind of letting someone off the hook for It's not like committed. someone will come in and steal, you know, $499 worth of merchandise from your shop. And then the next day after they leave prison, they automatically have it expunged. There would have to be a set amount of time that passes before yes. the record gets expunged and it no longer shows up uh, when you check like Moe case net or something. Now it is important to note the distinction between expungement and clearing a record. Yes. Uh, when a record is cleared, that means there's no record of it whatsoever, even in court proceedings. Expungement, if a criminal's record is expunged, the courts and the justice system still have the opportunity to use those prior criminal actions in any subsequent criminal trials or, or um, any other proceedings like that to check background history and um, know what kind of sentence to set. So if somebody had had their record expunged, if they commit a crime later on, the courts will still be able to use that prior crime in their trial proceedings. Yeah. So there's still some sort of 
for lack of a better term, kind of safety nets in, in the law for those that would offend again. Yep. Ultimately, it's built to encourage non-repetition of crimes. Yes. Uh, and also, simultaneously, it still deters further crimes from being committed. No, very good. And as you say, you know, this is one that's been filed by individuals in both parties. I know that Senator Williams, I think, has filed this multiple years. And I know Senator Trent is, is very much in favor of this and has this as one of his priorities. So we do hope that in the coming weeks, uh, this will be heard before committee and again, it's something we support in that broader view of how do we help these individuals get back into society to turn their life around and to better themselves. Um, and this is just one aspect of that. And so that's what we're working on at the moment. Obviously, it's still a somewhat small agenda. For anyone that wants kind of the full breadth of what we're following, please feel free to go to our website at mocatholic.org. We have our public policy positions on that page. We have our bill progress report. And as we get moving through session, that progress report will start filling up and we'll have more updates as things go through the process. And, and we'll probably be back here uh, around legislative spring break in about a month with, I'm certain, much more to talk about as the session goes on. So thank you, Kurt, for coming in today. And Thank you all for listening, and we hope you join us next time on MCC from the Capitol podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of MCC from the Capitol. Thanks to GovWatch for the Senate audio clips. To hear more from the Missouri Catholic Conference, visit our website at mocatholic.org. That's mocatholic.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app.